Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Petty Politics, bringing you the... Go Cam. Petty. <laughs> and the politics. The state of our union is shook. Well, thankfully, that's what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> we're going to talk about the state of the union. Oh, well, let's, let's start from the beginning. How about that? Let's do that. Um, first, in life of the law, what are we talking about? So we're going to get back to talking about Law School Admissions 101. We're going to integrate that into our episodes. And today we're going to be talking about networking. What can you be doing to show your best self to future employers, to potential law schools that might be looking at your LinkedIn or your Facebook? How can you also prepare to handle yourself in a cocktail setting, which is something that a lot of people have to do in order to network? Exactly. Professional development is very important, especially in law school. Also, we're going to be talking about activities. What kind of activities should you be putting on your resume in order to boost it, in order to stand out to employers? Don't put that club that you joined in the sixth grade that you were... <laughs> Underwater basket weaving is not a valuable it's skill. It's not a valuable skill. I'm sorry. But we will get more into that. Okay, and today for the political, what are we talking about? So we're going to start first with the state of... of his, <laughs> the state of his union. Uh, the state of so Trump's too. union. Uh, we're going to figure out what he was talking about. We're going to try to dissect as much as possible. And I, but I have, not, actually not so much, because we're not know, really getting into every caveat of infrastructure and economic reform that he alleged was happening. You know, it may or may not be whatever. True. But we will be talking about the main points. Right. And I have some feelings on a couple of different things that we can talk about, too. Exactly. Takeaways. We're also going to be talking about Russia. Why wasn't Russia sanctioned, mm. as they should have been? Questions. Exactly. <laughs> Questions that need answers. And also, why wasn't Russia even discussed in the State of the Union speech? There's been so many small things happening that it's like hard to talk about them individually, but we're going to try to get all of it in. We're going to talk about the Nunez memo that is bound to be released apparently today. To the danger of the United States of America, by so, the way. So we're just going to, the to try to, we're going yeah. to dissect that. We're going to dissect the fact that multiple people are being fired and rearranged and Trump is really insecure about the people he's hired. And Multiple people are also resigning. True. Also that. What about the petty, Bruce? Brother Andrew. Uh, the petty, we're talking about the Grammys. What else? Like, what else can we talk about other than the fact that Jay-Z didn't get an award, SZA didn't get an award? Uh... I have strong feelings, you know. <laughs> Shout out to Bruno Mars, but also why? Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. We're, we're also going to get into Blue Ivy and the fact that she was the most tweeted about celebrity. They said celebrity. So she is a celebrity. <laughs> At <laughs> wasn't her crying featured on a song like from At the hospital? Six years old. Exactly. No, from the hospital. Oh like, no, I'm like, talking about now. I'm like at six years old. She's uh, literally. Yeah. I mean, she's living her best life. I mean, did you see Queen Bee holding her fruit snacks in in her juice box during the Grammys? <laughs> literally sitting there like motherhood. Exactly, motherhood. Let's get started. So today in Life in the Law slash Law School Admissions 101, we're going to be talking about the importance of networking, how to build your network, how to find the best people to help you develop your career. Yes, networking. So we're going to start with LinkedIn. Cam has a couple of LinkedIn tips. Me, not so much because I I really don't use my LinkedIn. Right. I guess maybe your tips can help me figure out how to navigate through all of those people that you're constantly connecting with. So that that's the first thing that I wanted to kind of get into is the fact that people don't find LinkedIn to be valuable, right? Like, mm-hmm. like when you first started to get a LinkedIn and you like had made your account, what were you thinking about it? Were you like, oh, this well, is invaluable? It was really recommended to me by my undergraduate professor. Right. And he said, 
just to make a LinkedIn in order to kind of reach out to employers and such. And I have uploaded my resume and I do have some connections on there and such, but I don't know in terms of networking how valuable it is for me. Right. So I think that LinkedIn has a lot of untapped potential. And I think especially when you're kind of a little bit younger, if you're in your 20s, even your 30s, understanding that there is a social network for professionals and for career building Mm -hmm. is kind of odd. Like it isn't something that people care as much about. I remember having a LinkedIn in high school, but I at that point was like, who is going to hire? I'm not looking for a job. I'm looking for (laughs) colleges. I'm looking to get educated. Mm -hmm. The thing is, though, LinkedIn is actually a really amazing resource to be able to connect you with folks who you actually didn't think were even around or available. It puts faces to names. It also helps other people to provide you with the resources that you need to move forward to build your career. First, when you do the LinkedIn, actually take some time to develop a narrative. So oftentimes, a LinkedIn profile is thought of as another extension of your resume, an online resume of sorts. Mm -hmm. That can sometimes make it a little bit dry. It can make it feel very stoic, the same way that we have a resume and they're very short, sweet, to the point. Mm -hmm. The idea actually is that a LinkedIn profile should be a more personalized version, a more narrative form of your resume. Oh, nice. So a lot of things that you write about in your resume should make it onto your LinkedIn page, but it also should have a lot of content that you actually would probably not put in your resume. So for example, on my LinkedIn page, a lot of my descriptions don't have bullet points like they would in a resume where it's just very, you know, short sentences about what I did do. They actually talk more about why I wanted to work with the company, what the company values, and why those values connect to the things that I care about. So working with the ACLU, I can talk about them having an amazing history of fighting for civil rights and civil liberties. I can talk about the reason that I want to be a civil rights litigator and how coordinating with the ACLU provides me with resources to be able to do that. Also, being able to talk about what exactly I did is a kind of narrative addition to that, but it isn't as specific to the skills that I'm trying to gain. It's more focused on what I care about and how that organization helped me to bring myself to a next level in my career. Yeah, that's interesting. But in terms of reaching out to employers and actually getting concrete positions from a LinkedIn profile, mm-hmm. what advice would you give to everyone, so including we, me? Because I don't know. Right, right. <laughs> the one tool that LinkedIn is normally used for, even if many people don't kind of keep that in mind, is that people use it to kind of creep up on folks before an interview. So I don't mm. know if you've done this before. Wow. I know it's been done to me before, but... If I think it's been done to me before. It, it probably has. And so that, again, is a good reason to have a LinkedIn ready, even if you don't particularly check it or anything like that, because employers, admissions committees are going to be looking at your LinkedIn to see if they can garner any more information about you, because they're trying to find as much information about you as possible. And so that, again, is why your LinkedIn should provide different and or more information than can just be found in your resume or in your personal statement or in any other part of your application package, whether that is for a job or for law school. So for me, I remember seeing specifically, because it'll tell you sometimes who has viewed your profile. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it'll be like, you know, this specific person has viewed your profile, but oftentimes it'll be like... Yeah, I've seen that before. Right. Sometimes it'll be like, you know, this person from Harvard Law School has viewed your profile, and you don't know who it is, but especially when I was waiting for an interview with Harvard, I was like, okay, that's a good thing that they're looking for my LinkedIn. Oh, did you see that? Right. Wow. So so having things curated there and established in a way that was going to provide them with more information 
application meant that they were getting a little bit more than would have normally been provided in my actual application materials. And if another applicant had their LinkedIn set up, but it was just the description and what they did and how long they worked there, that admissions committee member wasn't getting as much information about them as they were about me. So that's one kind of slight technique for you to be able to maximize the value of your LinkedIn. Another thing is that it allows you to look up those people as well in terms of figuring out who is on the admissions committee, who you might be interviewing with, and how you can make sure that their knowledge and their experience is something that you can bring up. But So you don't think that looking them up when they're able to see that you viewed their profile is kind of awkward? Absolutely not. It shows due diligence. They want to know... <laughs> due diligence. Right, exactly. Like They want to know that you care enough about this whether it's a position at a job or an application for a law school, they want to know that you are putting in enough effort to understand the job, understand the school, and understand their process. So when I found out who was going to be interviewing me for Harvard, I actually went ahead and looked at their LinkedIn profile really? and found some actually really interesting information about their prior oh, work, goodness. some of the things that they cared about, their interest. And now I should able to, have done that. I mean, you don't have to, but it's definitely a great way for you to stand out because in the interview, I'm able to say, oh, Sarah, you know, I noticed that blah, blah, blah happened. I'll even say I, I was able to take a quick look at your LinkedIn and I also have this interest in whatever job you worked at or I interned with this place. You, you're able to develop connections out of thin air just because you find something interesting on their profile. So there are a bunch of other things I could kind of talk about because LinkedIn is very intricate, but I think those are, are two things that you can really keep in mind in terms of developing a narrative style with your LinkedIn profile and then also using it to find out more information about people that might be interviewing you or that you might be speaking with in a professional setting. I think that that makes a good segue to start talking about activities that can boost your resume. And when we talk about activities, we're talking about the clubs and organizations that you can join and put on your resume when you're an undergrad and applying for grad school because they show that you have an interest in something, but also, and more importantly, they show that you've contributed substantially to a certain cause. So my rule of thumb with activities is do not add it to your resume unless you were in some type of a leadership position. Mm -hmm. I think that that's very important because any admissions committee can see that you're kind of using an activity as a fluff and wasting their time when you add, okay, general body member of like student government or whatever. Mm -hmm. But because they want to know you and they want to know you on a personal level. And so they're not necessarily learning anything about you by knowing that you went to, and you probably didn't even go to such student body meetings, Oops. but they do know a lot about you when they see that, okay, you were so passionate about X, Y, and Z that you led this organization and then shows how you developed personally and professionally and even academically within that organization. So for me, one activity that I highlighted in particular was my position as the president of Phi Alpha Delta. And Phi Alpha Delta is one of the largest legal organizations in the world. It's actually a fraternity, so it's co-ed, mm -hmm. so boys and girls, as <laughs> you don't know. And I was the president of Phi Alpha Delta during my senior year before I was the chair of academic committee. And as the president, I inducted the largest chapter of our school's history, but I also was able to write a program for the New York City Council and, and facilitate internships for students who didn't necessarily know how to navigate resources. And so I highlighted that. And I was a part of other clubs and such on campus, sure, but I didn't put anything down unless I was the leader of that organization 
organization. Did you feel like you had planned to go for the presidency? Because oh, you said no. that you had a position before, right? Was yeah. that What year was that? So I joined Phi Alpha Delta, I think, as a sophomore. Uh-huh. And then the next year, I was kind of just, I became very much involved with the academic chair, just kind of helping and connecting to resources and stuff. And the chapter was very small. We didn't even have a fund on campus. I also worked on figuring out ways to expand ourselves on and off campus. And mm-hmm. those were very important for recruiting new members. And then when I became president, I started a whole bunch of new initiatives in order to gain members. The next time inductions came around is like when I was the president, we had over like 25 people coming in. It was great. Right. And then, and I just changed a lot of things about the chapter. We had networking events. Like we we paired with NYU's Phi Alpha Delta chapter and we had this big networking dinner. The room's just overflowing. We had the city councilman there. We had the dean of St. John's Law there on panel. Like it was great. And like, it, of course, NYU Law. Uh, it was great. How did you develop that networking atmosphere and how did you kind of prepare yourself and other members of Phi Alpha Delta to be able to network in that space? I had previously known them, so I didn't necessarily have to navigate through that space in order to meet them and introduce myself and give them a little bit of spill of my background in order to make future connections. Like I kind of already knew them, but then they were on panel and the other students were able to kind of meet with them. So after the panel, we put them at, the ta- at different tables mm-hmm. and they kind kind of went around each table and spoke to the students individually. And then those students were able to make their own connections with them. But you got to know them through work you kind of set up for them. Exactly. Right? Like you weren't going to be able to know this New York City Councilman unless you had already worked on this project with them in the first place. Exactly. So it's all about just meeting people and just reaching out. Right. Yeah. I think that's like a really great skill to be able to distill from this lesson too, is that if you can create mutually beneficial arrangements with people in positions of power it's a lot more likely that they're going to be willing to support you. And so it's all about keeping these connections, being relentless and going out and getting them. Don't be afraid to talk to people. Keeping this all in mind, right? Being able to understand the importance of networking, kind of getting out of your comfort zone, being able to identify who are the people with power and and who can support you in trying to build your career. Oftentimes that has to be done electronically and digitally now. So using Mm -hmm. LinkedIn is a great way for you to identify people. I wanted to work with Beyonce for a little bit and I was (laughs) like, um, can I find your VP of like public giving at Parkwood? And I did. And I linked up with her and was like, hey, I'd love to talk with you more about this organization. She did respond, but she had left the organization. So she didn't have any resources to give at that point. But being able to use these tools that are at your disposal, oftentimes the best way to use them won't be particularly clear or evident, but you do have to work within your means and kind of think outside of the box when it comes to using the amazing resources that you have to get a good job or even to get into law school. Okay, so time for the political. So, of course, we're starting with the State of the Union speech. If you haven't watched it, just find the time to watch it. Honestly, don't. Save your time. <laughs> no, it's, no, it's good It's good to be, I mean, I was going to say it's good to be informed, but there's all, so informed? many alternative facts. We watched it <laughs> together, and I feel like we ended up not really learning very much and kind of just yelling at the screen. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know. Shout out to the Black Dems, though, in their kente cloth who had the mood that we had. Let's just start from the very beginning. So we had Trump. <laughs> This has been a very hyped State of the Union address. There were yes. there were things coming out. There was actually a part of the speech that was leaked before the speech. There were like segments that people were saying, oh, hey, he's going to really give it to North Korea. So, like, it honestly felt like a promo for, like, a TV show episode, yeah, that's like a what season I was finale. Thinking. It, was, it was literally the finale on The Apprentice. So it was, it was really odd. But 
Trump went through a very rehearsed, very carefully written speech, probably by Stephen Miller, uh, that <laughs> touched on all of the the major issues you would imagine, except Russia. Uh, he talked about black unemployment and made it seem like he himself had single-handedly lifted black folks on his back out of uh, the wilderness and into the land of prosperity. Yeah, because remember <laughs> last time he was telling everyone that we're at an all-time low. and For unemployment. Exactly, yeah. like, what could we lose? So <laughs> just remember that statement and Which itself is still a lie. And I'm happy that a lot of people started to give the commentary of, like, sure, black unemployment's down. It's still twice as much as white folks. And it actually, ha- there hasn't been very much of a change in high earning jobs going to black folks. It's like, yes, you can find us minimum wage jobs and we can find a a, a way of making something out of that. And that's a good thing. It has gone down significantly since 2008. However, all of that is not... Exactly. We're still in low-paying jobs. If you're you're decreasing black unemployment, but these black workers are still working in, for example, McDonald's, then you're just perpetuating generational poverty and such because you're restricting, I think at that point, their educational opportunities. I mean, you had already mentioned the black folks that were in the audience and were fed up. So there was a group of folks who actually boycotted the entire State of the Union. There were a number of Democrats who weren't in attendance and were actually boycotting it. And in fact, a bunch of people... In, like in the public, the general public were trying to boycott it. My mom wanted to boycott it. <laughs> so it's just like people were boycotting. The folks that did not choose to boycott came to the the gallery. There was a group of black Democrats who were wearing kente cloth shawls. They also had Reese Taylor pins. Uh, if you haven't heard of the story, Reese Taylor is a woman who recently passed away. She had been fighting for much of her life to seek justice after being assaulted by six white men um, who did uh, rape her and were never really brought to justice despite her seeking every legal avenue that she could. So people were supporting her and speaking her name because of all of the obvious important sexual assault dialogue that we've been having recently. But seeing them, I don't know if you saw them, but the <laughs> the looks on their faces were hilarious because they, they never they, stood, they never clapped. Just very apathetic. It was, very <laughs> most of them were probably on Twitter, just like checking, checking their phones. No, I don't even think so. They were literally just staring straight ahead. That's what they were saying they would do. They were like, you know, we're going to stare in the face of hate. So, I mean, I, I value that, too. Like, I yeah. think that's another form of, of resistance to this, too. But I, I'm ready for the gifts to come out after it because all of the faces that they were giving, they would <laughs> whoever was running the camera was petty because they would be running close up to someone's face and just saying, like, I'm uninterested in what Trump is saying Literally. in the middle of this round of applause. Exactly. So amongst the many topics that Trump talked about was the idea of attacking North Korea. And for me, this was actually a very frustrating and honestly a groundbreaking segment of the speech because I truly feel like it did bang the the drums of war, I guess, is one of the analogies that people use, because it actually used so many different fear-mongering tactics to portray North Korea as an enemy. Now, I'm not saying that North Korea should necessarily have nuclear weapons or that it necessarily should uh, be on the right side of history when it comes to this debacle. Well, they're not. Probably not. It's very clear that the method that Trump was using in this speech was one that was trying to distort the image of North Korea purposely. Exactly. During the speech, he makes two different references to two people who have been in North Korea and have suffered as a result. He spoke to the death of Otto Warmbier, who was a a student who was in North Korea, detained, who was ultimately released and was in bad shape and ultimately passed away. Otto Warmbier's family members were in the audience. You have these uh, these two white parents bawling for the cameras, right? And 
in his description of this event, Trump is using the most foul language to describe what North Korea did to him, the fact that he had been struggling and hadn't been nourished properly, um, and that ultimately his death was on North Korea, that blood was on the hands of North Korean officials. Exactly. He then spoke about Sung Ho, who was one of the uh, people who was able to escape North Korea and gave us a very, I guess, brutal story of family members having to give all of their food to to somebody else and then having to eat dirt for a certain period of time and the fact that he, he had broken his legs and was unable to walk. And these are all visceral stories that show the brutality of living in North Korea. But it's also important to recognize that the way that we frame countries and the way that we frame the acts of, of other countries is always political. It's not the most objective way for us to think about these issues. And so Trump honestly was trying to fuel the flames of war by doing this. And I feel like it's, it's especially way more likely that we're going to go to war with North Korea as a result of the the rhetoric that he put out in the speech. Exactly. He used a very compelling emotional poll, literally pathos all through that speech, to get this American backing to basically hate North Korea. And we see this all the time with the aggressive militarization, not only internally, but externally, mm-hmm. of how we continually make one country the scapegoat and the and the aim of American hate. So first we saw it happen with communists, and then we saw it happen with ISIS. But it didn't happen with ISIS only. It happened basically with all Muslims and Muslim countries. Yeah. And now we see him using this rhetoric to form a coalition against North Korea. Now, again, we're not saying that Kim is doing anything right. He's probably actually doing everything wrong, but Donald Trump's response is very negative. It's very typical at this point because we saw it happened earlier in history, and it's going to be very demeaning because we probably will go into war with North Korea at this point. And it's so disproportionate to the actual threat being presented by North Korea. People have been tweeting about this all the time, saying that North Korea is not about to bomb us because they are self-preservationists, right? They're not trying to die over this. And they know that American nuclear power is way stronger, right? The thing is that I feel like Trump truly wants a war at this point. And if we look back to the language and the rhetoric used by the Obama administration and talking about ISIS, but also the Bush administration, because I think that's a closer... Uh, analog, because in creating the specter of the Iraqi terrorist, right, which was exactly the purpose of doing this after 9-11, and it was successful for that reason, all of the facts that were being pushed on the American public for reasons to go to war were ultimately proved to be false. There weren't weapons of mass destruction exactly. involved, right? Exactly. The idea was really out of racism, right? It was really the notion that a person who is brown-skinned, who is Muslim, is necessarily a danger to, and exactly. a threat to America, and therefore we should take our people and our weapons overseas to begin a fight with them. Exactly. We And we have to galvanize all of the support that we can. And now we see a lasting effect of that type of behavior and that language from the Bush administration because it still is intermingled, it's still interconnected with the current immigration reform initiatives, and it's just dangerous. It's dangerous. So first he uses the death of Otto, and it's sad, and we're empathizing with this, and we also hate that these things happened, but don't make these things the caricature of our entire relationship with North Korea. Though it's been bad, I don't know if it's it's warranting war. Right, like don't scapegoat. Exactly. We should start talking about immigration and what he was saying during his immigration spill. <laughs> so he made the one comment that I thought was really out of pocket, which is the notion that Americans are dreamers too. Okay. So I, I don't understand what concession he's trying to make. Is he trying to recognize the fact that all Americans are, are immigrants here? Like white folks no, are, are immigrants? No, I think that he was saying like, 
you know, why are we always trying to protect outside countries when we need to be protecting ourselves too? Like he was he was making right. that comparison and I think that Kennedy addressed that in his rebuttal. Mm -hmm. He was talking about the fact that Americans need to focus on their own resources for advancement other than allowing others in the country, which has been trending rhetoric in his entire immigration reform proposals, like throughout his entire candidacy and then now his administration. So Trump developed this very odd pathway to citizenship project, and we've talked a little bit about it before with regards to the immigration reform and DACA measures. He explained it again during the State of the Union, saying that he wanted to find a pathway for 1.8 million undocumented immigrants in the country, though he did add specifically that there were going to be education and work requirements as well as some type of, quote unquote, moral character or, or showing of good moral <laughs> standing um, requirement, which makes no sense. I, I assume that it has to do with the notion of criminality or if you have a criminal record, which is something that doesn't necessarily speak to morality, but I'll leave that for Yeah, let's side. just leave that another time, honestly. <laughs> Firstly, but secondly, the education work, what do you think he's referring to when he's talking about that? The notion that someone has to be smart or has to be educated to immigrate to this country is itself racist. Exactly. And so that's what my biggest issue with this part of the speech was, the fact that it continuously and implicitly made references to um, a more meritocracy-type vetting. We've seen comparatively in America, meritocracy, again, like you said, is a lie. And administrations and people, especially who are white and are not a disadvantage, continue to forget to differentiate between the taxonomy of privilege and then meritocracy. And so then we see meritocracy in itself completely underlying the how current political structures are set up and the fact that there is systemic racism entrenched in probably not only every political but social structure and how you're already disadvantaged coming from lower income but also minority and especially immigrant backgrounds. And right. so you cannot necessarily talk about meritocracy when no one has ever been on the same playing field. White skin continues to be an asset for those who want to move within the current social systems because that is the dominant culture. And it acts as a cultural protection to plenty of things, whereas everyone else is purposefully alienated. And it all falls back on this idea of meritocracy and bootstraps and work for what you want. And it's just not ever going to be fair. I think the notion of whiteness as cultural protection is really important and actually showed itself in other parts of the State of the Union speech, especially with regards to the conflict between Israel and Palestine. Mm -hmm. So Trump makes a comment again about the fact that the U.N. measure that the U.S. supported uh, regarding creating Jerusalem as the new and official capital of Israel. Uh, Which is none of his business. Might, might I add? I mean, it's his business only because America is supposed to be the mediator between Israel and Palestine, which I think itself is a terrible idea. So the fact that all of these nations in the UN disagreed with America and disagreed with the project of creating Jerusalem as the new capital without the actual negotiation that the United States is supposed to be invested in was something that Trump was mad about and ultimately is going to lead to him removing funding from these UN countries, something that he reiterated in the State of the Union speech. So after the vote happened, he immediately had a party for the countries that did support the measure and called them the Friends of America. Wow. And, and in the speech, he's saying, if you aren't a friend of America, if you don't believe in American interest, then we're not going to support you financially. And I think that is a very powerful statement because it shows how America can hold the rest of the world hostage in really meaningful and detrimental ways, particularly Palestine 
Palestine, which has been really dependent on the support and dependent on America being a, a voice of reason when it comes to the issues between Israel and Palestine. This barbaric type of bribery is what I think it is. I think that that is the premise of America's ability to subjugate surrounding countries and foreign, even even internally. And I think that this type of colonial action and speech is nothing new. This is how America has persisted. Right. And I'm so unamused, unentertained, and even unsurprised. <laughs> One thing that I'm actually surprised about is the fact that Russia wasn't mentioned. Okay, I, I was surprised because I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like wait. I was like, well, uh, no, but wait. I, I was I really am. expecting at least about 20 no collusions in that speech. Exactly. But he uh, didn't 21. bring it up. He, he actually didn't. And he actually didn't even talk about the fact that he didn't sanction Russia. So what's up with that? So the fact that he didn't actually talk about it gives us a lot of great room for us to just tell you what he missed because there's a lot of stuff <laughs> happening. Like I don't, he probably just doesn't want to put the spotlight on the fact that his government's crumbling. But anyway, exactly. What's going on with Russia? Okay, so here's the backstory. Trump signed the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act in a law. And mind you guys, this is a completely bipartisan bill, so it has backing from both the Republican and the Democratic lawmakers, unlike Mm -hmm. plenty legislation that's being pushed through right now. Mm -hmm. So that's a plus. (laughs) But anyways, um, this bill was actually introduced in response to Trump's being so friendly with Vladimir Putin and his refusal to even, not even blame, but even address the fact that Russia meddled in our 2016 election. And so this literally was unanimously passed in both chambers. So it's clear that if he tried to veto this, then Congress was going to override this. And because it was literally specifically designed to make old sanctions against Russia permanent and to pressure Trump to impose new ones, because that's important because they meddled in the election in many ways. <laughs> right. Like the, the notion of sending out sanctions is a political act, right? It's yeah. the fact that you're recognizing that someone's done something wrong and that you're going to punish them and prohibit them from doing that, exactly. or at least deter them, right? Exactly. At least deter. Exactly. And this bill in itself, it forced him to at least impose costs on Putin for interfering in the American democratic process, and but also interfering with Ukraine and Syria. Trump eventually pretty much slammed this legislation in a written statement, and he basically called it flawed. He said, oh, um, I can make a better deal with these foreign countries than the Congress can. Okay, first of all, that, that statement alone is horrible. Right. So I'm better than Congress. So once again, he's superseding a branch of government and breaking into the federalist structures and just kind of disrespecting it on many levels. But I mean, that's what he does. And so he pretty much missed the deadline to impose the new sanctions on Russia. And then Putin responded, and he was like, oh, the U.S. is being horrible to me, and this is their this is their attempts to try to intervene in our political system now. So now Putin's bad. I think what's also really wild about this is the fact that people that actually voted for the bill are now acting as if they side with Trump when it comes to this. So a lot of people are saying, first and foremost, that Russia's already being sanctioned right now. They're actually being sanctioned under the Magnitsky Act, which is the one that has kind of been codenamed Russian adoptions. And that's been a major topic within the larger Russia inquiry about was Trump using the act to kind of discuss sanctions, to leverage the fact that they could remove these sanctions as a result of Russia interfering with the election. So like trying to basically do a quid pro quo. So people are actually freaking out about this and saying, well, 
you know, the, the current Russian sanction for adoption is already working, so now we don't need any more sanctions that should be imposed by Trump. But that's really disingenuous because, again, it's a political statement. So the fact that you aren't choosing to give sanctions, even if they're small sanctions, still shows that you are willing to relent. You're willing to, to pull back some of the, the attacks or the threats or the means of deterrence that you could put on Russia. People are actually feeling very confident that Russia is going to interfere in 2018, <gasps> potentially even in 2020. They're saying that Russia has already been interfering in other European elections that have happened recently. So the notion that, oh, we're going to wait and see until Russia does something is really wild because, of course, they're working right now. This is an election year. So exactly. they start early. They're not. It's not like they're going to wait until October before exactly. they start hacking. They're already working their propaganda arms. I'm sure there are already things being sent out on Twitter and Facebook to to get people to feel this way. So I think it's odd that people are actually like changing and they're shifting, especially when the vote in both the House and the Senate were so, they were almost unanimous, basically. Mm -hmm. And I hate that people are trying to take such a shallow view of this. Like, oh, what could Russia do? Like, what influence can Russia have on the president of the United States? But it's not about the president. It's about the people and the fact that knowing Russia is continually interfering in this election process is disincentivizing people from participating and voting and such. Because Russia is dictating the outcome. And it's just another tool that Russia is using to discredit the faith of our nation and the faith of people in the government. But speaking of discredit... (laughs) This memo that we promised the tea on. I this memo has actually like I'm waiting for it. Like where like just show <laughs> Why? it. Why? Like, no, it? I don't want it to be released. Oh my god. I'm FISA just... is warning against this release. It's literally it's 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 classified information that can get people killed. So here's what's happening. Devin Nunez, who is the chair of the House Intelligence Committee, has been all over the news waves talking about this memo that he's been working on that he's going to release imminently that will suddenly uncover the fact that the Mueller investigation is a farce and it is a part of a Hillary Clinton project to discredit President Trump and make him seem like a bad person. That's, yeah, that that's what he's been telling people. Like, that's actually what he's been saying. <laughs> that's, yeah. and, and no one has any evidence of this. No, no one really exactly. understands what's going to be in the memo. In fact, people think it's dangerous for us it, to release I mean, it is dangerous. It has a lot of classified information. Everyone's warning against it. This is unprecedented. It's a completely partisan memo written by Devin Nunez. And it's really just a it's an attempt to discredit the FBI at this point. And it just shows that the White House is and always will be, at least during the Trump administration, at war with the justice system. With its own Justice Department, With its too, own, right? exactly. Like, exactly. that's been the really odd part, that the FBI would put out a note saying, we think this is actually very harmful to our security and actually has a lot of things that have been omitted Right. Exactly. Things that are materially omitted, which itself could be a crime. So if Devin Nunez in writing this memo is removing things or not saying things or keeping out details or facts that could be relevant to giving the context for this memo. Exactly. That actually could be an issue that could put him in trouble. They're trying to shift American perception. And the fact that Trump hasn't even read this memo and he also has the authority, he has actually the authority to omit information that could properly contextualize the memo as well. It's particularly dangerous. So we have this Democrat memo, which is supposed to be a response to it or a clarification of what's happening in the Nunez memo, which is not going to be released at the same time. And that's been one 
one thing that's caused a lot of uh, trouble, too. The notion that you're going to release the Republican version first and give people time to fit with that before giving a another side of the story, which should honestly be released at the same time. People are saying, oh, it's a procedural issue, and that's why it's not being released at the same time. But it's very clear that the Nunez memo could be released at the same time. Like, they'd been postponing it all week. We heard earlier this week that it was going to be released on Monday. So the fact that it hasn't been released at this point makes me feel like they're trying to just build the hype on it, again, kind of like Mm -hmm. the State of the Union address. But in fact, they said Trump said he didn't want it released before the State of the Union. Because he wanted the focus on his... Right, he didn't want it to be overshadowed. My my reality television show debut. (laughs) Right, like, he didn't want to be overshadowed by the Nunez memo, which likely would have been the case. Exactly. But I'm sure that isn't even necessary because he's still been overshadowed by a lot of other things happening with regards to the Russia investigation. The fact that FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe is going to resign now ahead of being able to retire with full benefits is a problem because that shows that he's been pushed out. We're hearing a whole bunch of things about Trump asking people for loyalty pledges like he did with James Comey saying, are you on my side? Are you on my team? Even asking Rod Rosenstein, who is the acting attorney general for the Mueller investigation, if he was on his team. Look, these folks are working for the government. They're working for the presidency. They're working for the White House. They're not working to serve your specific interests if yours diverge with the country's interests. So I don't know. Which they have. Right. This entire administration. (laughs) Very clearly. So at this point, we're just going to, to hope and pray that this country's still around and isn't going to be either nuking or being nuked by North Korea. Um, and look, the State of the Union is, is questionable Very at best. Questionable. Right? At best, exactly. At best. At best. Um, and, and trifling at worst. Exactly. Oh, well, I think trifling at best, but mm. let's continue. Alrighty, let's get into the petty. There's not too much to talk about this week. It's been kind of a chill week, at least in terms of the petty. But I wanted to get into the Grammys. That was the biggest moment of this past week. During the Grammys, it was something we had talked about earlier, the fact that so many black people were selected and were nominated for awards. Four out of the five albums for Album of the Year were of black men. Okay. Uh, and, then, and that's a cut above the norm. Okay. Oh, absolutely. For sure. So the thing is, Bruno Mars won basically everything, though. Okay. So, like, people were kind of pressed about that. People so, are once saying, again, the Grammys takes the path of least resistance. Which is exactly <laughs> what people are saying. They're you know, saying, basically, you know, Bruno Mars gives us, you know, sock hop, happy-go-lucky music that has a tinge of black pop, to it. Pop, yeah, pop, you know, not so much. Yeah, definitely It's black crossover. adjacent. It's yeah, black music, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I'm not even going to shade him like that because <laughs> I like the music. The thing is, it's not particularly political. It's not particularly militant in some of the ways that the other artists Kendrick Lamar, Childish Gambino, Jay Z, were kind of doing right. They had themes to their music. They had ideas even, and even concepts. Even SZA, her her concept of feminism and particularly Black feminism and how it feels to being a woman at the forefront of not only music and social but also political action. I think that SZA deserved at least one Grammy, girl. That's I, right. I loved SZA. People were particularly mad about the fact that she lost out. Artist of the Year to Camilla Cabello. Who, used who to is be that? In, I think she used to be in Fifth Harmony. Wow. So people have been kind of especially mad about that, just thinking, you know, who is she? And does it kind of deserve control with an album of the summer? It was truly my bop. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was really hurt. <laughs> no, it was. You know I was replaying that every day. Garden. Garden, exactly. I got tired. Need you. For the, oh, don't, don't make me. I, I, don't. <laughs> don't. 
Don't make me with the thing. Broken clocks, the weekend, come on. Love come galore through, with, a, with a fingal a for the year. Exactly. Push through, sister. We got you. We're still rooting for you, girl. So the fact that Scissor didn't win anything is another issue. People were talking about Kesha's performance of Praying, which was kind of a ode to the Me Too and Time's Up movement. The fact that she has been in such a very public legal battle with her producer who had been assaulting her and, and actually preventing her from developing her music for a significant period of time. I thought the song itself was um, off key, but <laughs> but it was a great move. It, it, was, it was a great. It was a great movement. It was a great gesture. moment. Right, mm-hmm, that's right. what it was. She yes. brought on a bunch of other amazing celebrities. All of them were wearing white. Mm-hmm. One thing I was kind of mad about is the fact that two of the most radical statements of the night are not getting play. One was Kendrick Lamar's initial performance of of Triple X. Um, at the beginning of the night, which was amazing and just brought out so many yes, different exactly. racial division issues. Dave Chappelle was in the, in the oh middle God, literally telling him. people, yes. saying, like, there was a moment where Dave Chappelle was like, Y'all are y'all are letting him do this on the Grammys? Like, like for are y'all sure, are y'all watching the same thing I'm watching? Y'all are cool. Yeah. With this? So he was making a joke. Janelle Monae brought out Kesha and like made an amazing statement about the Times Up movement and about the fact that black folks and women in particular have been building the system and keeping it running for mm-hmm. ever, forever. So the Literally fact that, since the country's con- inception, right? So so I think those were two of the main statements that I thought were actually going to get a lot more play than they really did, um, and they truly deserve better. I really did. Yeah, people think they really did. slept on Janelle Monet. <laughs> I wanted to talk real quick about Blue Ivy because Blue Ivy was in the front row, all decked out she in white, was. angelic. Angelic. And her parents were 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 struggling. Yeah, they were. I mean, they were going through she, it. At one point, she had her hand up, like "Don't talk to me" when they were looking at her. I think she's like, "I think." Did you see the meme? It was like, "Oh, right. y'all put out all our family business first with lemonade, and then with four, 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 and right. we still don't have a Grammy. We still don't have it. They spoke their entire truth, <laughs> no, they and not did. a single Grammy. They did, and I appreciate for, for that so much. I mean, Beyonce got a, a Grammy. She got yeah. Urban Contemporary, so at least she got a Grammy. Yeah, but there was. I think the main meme that you're talking about is the one where. That was during Camilla Cabello's speech. People started clapping, including Beyonce and Jay-Z. And that's mm-hmm. when Blue was like, actually, no. Nope. Don't do that. <laughs> Put your hand down. Uh, so the fact that like Blue Ivy is just so woke and so She critical. is woke. She's, and you know what? I'm going to jump on the bandwagon and do what everyone else does when someone does something the least bit influential. Um, Blue Ivy for 20, what, 40? No. 50? Stop. If you saw if you saw the music video for Family Feud, then we already know Blue Ivy is destined no, yeah, to be sure. our founding mother. Exactly. Our so we're not worried. We're I not like worried. that one. Our founding mother. Okay. She was dressed like in an outfit that looked like it came from Family Feud TVH. No, yeah, you know what? She I think they all were actually TVH. Better luck next time, JV. I'm I'm sorry. I like oh 444. This is, this is a harsh I think it's kind of like a shame. Luck next time. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's kind of a shame that he didn't win anything. It's but a shame. You know, I, that could be said for a lot of other people who were really deserving of Grammys that night, and all of them went to Bruno Mars. Shout out to 24 Karat Magic, all right? Mm-hmm. Shout out to Versace. Shout out to the performance that Cardi Sh- B exactly. and Exactly. Shout Bruno out to particularly, particularly Cardi B <laughs> and her collaborating with Bruno Mars. He does do urban collaboration. The live performance was cute. Yeah, great. Was cute. 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 Finesse. Okay, well, thank you for listening to another episode of Petty Politics. Keep sending us emails about your questions for Life in the Law segments, and also just continue to like, comment, and subscribe. We're hearing so much more from folks today than we were 
laugh even. People have been running up to me in bars like, hey, I listen to Petty Politics. And I was like, yo, word. Did what? you like, comment, and subscribe, though? <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> but did after. you? No, no. Poli- questions that need answers. Oh, okay. And that is very it's important. A start. Keep it coming. Keep it coming. Like and comment, Joe. Like and comment. Anyway, thanks so much for listening to us. We really appreciate it. And we'll see you next week. See you next week. <laughs>